please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. I have the passage for you on your outline as well. Genesis 6. This records humankind's descent into sin and towards judgment. Um, uh, a cursory reading, a superficial reading would uh, cause you to miss some of the intricacies that are here that have uh, caused Bible scholars to discuss and debate for centuries. There's much here for us. What would cause God to bring about a flood, a catastrophic flood as he does? Um, I would suggest that the chapter, it's more than um, man's sin alone. There is a satanic element involved. Remember, God promises in Genesis 3 to send a seed from the woman who would be the Messiah, the second Adam, to crush the head of the serpent. Well, we can expect that that would elicit a response from Satan. And so part of what you see here, I believe it's fair to say, uh, comes from this satanic response. Now, when we read this passage, we'll note that many centuries, or I should say many generations have gone by, 10 generations from Adam to Noah. But because of the long lives that they lived before the flood, um, lots of people were born and crossed over into other generations. Adam lived for eight generations. So it's conceivable that Adam got to within 200 years of Noah being born. So they crossed over quite a bit. Um, just for a bit of perspective when we consider what we're reading here, uh, these years that people live much longer before the flood. Here now as I read God's holy word, this is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, the book of beginnings is filled with glorious revelation. We are given the foundation necessary for interpreting the world and our existence. By the ministry of your Spirit, please give us clarity and understanding what we read today and how to apply the truth that we learn. Please give us humility. Give us dependence on you. Give us an increase in faith in Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. By the time of the New Testament, we become really aware of who our enemies are, and they're all related to the same thing, sin. 
started in the garden and it works its way through. And by the time the New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, come on the scene, they're able to really give us some clarity about what's working against us in this sinful existence that we are experiencing. You have, of course, the devil as our chief enemy, at least the one who started it all. The devil's not omnipresent, so it's not as though Lucifer himself could be spending much time particularly on you, but he also has legions of demons, and they maraud around as well. Besides the devil who brought sin into the world, we also have the fact of our sinful flesh. Because we are sinners, um, we, our desires are tainted, we have corruption in our nature as a result. And then you combine a bunch of us together, and we have a world filled with people who have corrupt natures. So you've got the devil, you've got yourself, your flesh, and you've got the world to contend with. And the New Testament will speak in these terms of these enemies often. So we just recognize. You could take any one of them away, and you still have a problem. Now, because of redemption in Jesus Christ, a believer's flesh has changed. into a, We're a new creation. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have a remnant of the old man or the old woman in us, the flesh. We still battle it. We know it. But now we have capacity to battle it because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. But we still contend with putting down our old flesh, dealing with the devil, and dealing with the world around us. These three enemies are constantly in play. We see it in antiquity in this passage. The devil, the world, and the flesh all conspiring together to bring about God's judgment. Now, at the same time, we see something else at work that we should gather. While it's a desperate situation because of sin, God has made a promise, a promise to undo what the devil brought about and actually crush the devil's head in so doing by bringing the second Adam. The seed of the woman is a major theme now rolling through Genesis and really the whole of the biblical revelation that we have. The history of God's redemption is really about God remembering his promises and preserving the seed. For you personally, there will be days where you will not feel like you're a Christian. You will wonder, based on your behavior, your feelings, your desires, your thoughts, what's happened, and you'll lack assurance. Be reminded, Christians, that if you have rested in Christ and you know that you are a sinner and you believe on him, that God remembers his grace to us in Christ. He looks at you as though he looks at his son, and he remembers, and he preserves you, gives you to persevere. This trait of God to remember his grace and to preserve is thoroughgoing through the scriptures and it's true in our own lives even to today. We'll see a big picture here about what's happening in this portion of the Bible, but we'll also have a personal application when we learn something about the nature of God and how he relates to his promises and to his people. First of all, I want you to consider how bad things have gotten. I read that, those verses, and I'm sure they struck you like they did me. I mean, you can't get any worse of, of a description. In verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. How great? That every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. I mean, how, how much more masterful can you put or describe the, the situation? In verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Everybody's included in this. Everyone's indicted in this. Every last person. Now I want you to imagine for a moment the sinfulness of sin and the reality of it that we recognize even in our own selves. But imagine if you lived a lot longer than you do. 
If you were unregenerate, unrepentant, with this sin compounding, and then centuries are compounding. Imagine Hitler, who doesn't die at 65, but rather at 865. Or Jeffrey Dahmer, or John Wayne Gacy, or Stalin, or any other despot you can think of. Not just living their short, limited time, but hundreds of years. Compound that by many people, who according to the passage, none are repentant or redeemed. Not at this moment anyways, when he's doing this characterization. And so you have the worst of the worst compounding over the years, and it gets very bleak indeed. And we have God's response in human terms that we can relate with. In verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made him grabbing hold of language that every person would understand. He attributes to himself so that we would gather how bad it had gotten. That's the point. Great, great sin and a totally righteous judgment from God as he looks upon it. Totally righteous except for one thing, one thing that God had made a commitment. He made a promise. He's speaking about what is true and no one could argue with. No one would even be able to argue with it because he wouldn't lay hold of his promises in that state of wickedness. But he to himself bears oath that he made a promise. He pledged to raise a seed from the woman to crush the head of Satan. Sin, judgment, but grace. Now I want you to notice something about Noah to correct a bit of his legend, if you will. You'll hear the story told. Sometimes we fall into it, we tell children. Things were terrible on the earth, but there was one guy who was a good guy, and so God, because he was a good guy, decided to... That's not the story. Is not what it says. That everything was as bad as it could be. But God found, but Noah found favor. It doesn't say God gave favor to Noah because he was a good guy. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's from this gracious hand of God upon Noah. Noah just found it. Just like you just found it. I just found, why did God save you? I don't know. I found favor in the eyes of God. That's grace. That's undeserved favor because everyone was wicked. So the fact that Noah found this favor, it's the same recurring theme of God's grace. Yes, there's sin. There should be judgment. God maintains his righteousness, yet Noah found favor. He found God's grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the righteous status of Noah that's described comes after he had found God's favor. That's when the description of what his generations were like. This is the story, once again, of God's grace in its earliest form, but it's a heavy story en route to it. Grace remembers and grace preserves. Grace has to do with God remembering his promise to save and preserve a seed, even though as he looks around, it's as bad as it can be. Not only are people armed up against God, but the devil has entered the picture in a new way that we had not seen before. So it's God's will to bring forth and preserve the seed and also send a very clear message, especially to the satanic realm, that there will be no thwarting of the seed. This will not happen. You know, there's a modern song that brings it kind of to a personal level that I think applies here. In Christ alone, it's been out for some 20 years now. One line that I think captures the truth of our walk even, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Because there will be powers of hell that want to work against that. We see it in the passage. There will be schemes of mankind, even our own hearts at times, that will work against us. 
But no power of hell, no scheme of man can cause God to forget his grace and to move him to preserve the seed, to maintain the line of Messiah, who is our sure salvation. The power of hell was at work in the days of Noah. We'll see that here. Satan was certainly moving. The scheme of sinful man was at work in the days of Noah. Years of compounding sin in the hearts of thousands of unrepentant sinners. But God's promises, not forgotten. The seed would be safe through God's grace to one family to begin. I would like to ask a series of questions and attempt to answer them as we walk through because this passage has lots of questions that people ask. And I think that would be the best way to walk through this passage with you. You see what the overall picture is. Things have descended and degraded. Why have they descended and degraded? Uh, what's the reason for the flood to come? What are some of the particular players in this? Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? What is the 120 years related to? What's the actual sin that causes the flood? And ultimately, what is it about Noah? How does he find favor? All of these are questions that will help us understand the passage. First, oft asked, much debated, who were the sons of God in Genesis 6? Now, if you're newer to the Bible, I remember when I first heard this, I'm like, what's the big deal with this passage? Why? Well, there's lots here, and you'll notice as I go through it how complex it has, it's been dealt with over the years. But I think the answers, at least in the large level, are plain enough for us to recognize the big picture. It starts by saying in verse 1, when men, man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Who are the sons of God here? I want you to notice it begins, mankind in general is multiplying, and the daughters were born to them. So daughters coming from humankind. Then in verse 2, the sons of God, not previously introduced as a label in Genesis, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Uh, whoever the sons of God are, are here, they are, what they were doing is offensive to God. You get a bit of a sense that they have a sovereignty about them, at least in their, their mind and actions. They seem to be operating with no regard to God's law about marriage or about humanity for that matter. And they're called the sons of God. Interesting. And we notice by verse 3 that God's really swift reaction tells them that something was clearly uh, to be disapproved of. The Lord said, my spirit will not abide, shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days will be 120 years. Something severe God is planning now and it's a result of what was going on just in that brief description of verse 1 and verse 2 of the sons of God taking as their wives these daughters of man or mankind. In what sense could these sons of God be acting with God's disapproval? Now, some will say that the sons of God, they're simply the godly line or the line of Seth, the sons of God. The problem with this view is We've just gotten a thoroughgoing description that there was nobody who could be identified as godly at this moment. Certainly, that would be quantified as the sons of God, a term that's not showed up in Genesis yet. So it doesn't seem like we're talking about the offspring of Seth. Some will say that the sons of God are in reference to a ruling or a dynastic class of earthly rulers who have established themselves at such heights and power, kind of like Lamech before. Uh, almost that they were treated as divine, like you'll see in Egyptian lore with the pharaohs and such. These dynastic classes of rulers had such power and influence uh, that they could not be thwarted. 
these two options are taken by many modern Bible scholars. But I think the more ancient view actually comports with the context, with the language, and with the theology. The Jewish scholar Josephus purports the view that I'll put forward, and he was writing in the first century, basically typifying what the Jewish scholars thought of Genesis when they were writing at the time of Christ. The phrase sons of God does appear in the scriptures a few times, at least in this language construct. In Job, an ancient book, we read, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So Satan, the angelic being, the fallen angelic being, is with the sons of God. Sons of God here is used in terms of other angelic beings. Satan and his demons present themselves before God because they want to have at Job. They want to prove God's character uh, will not be respected by mankind if mankind suffers. So the devil and his angels come to God and say, let's have at Job. We'll prove that these people really don't love you. So we have an instance where the sons of God are referred to as angelic, demonic beings even. At least angelic beings, if not demonic. This interpretation also takes into account a couple passages in the New Testament that really don't make sense apart from the idea that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels or fallen angels. Jude is writing. Jude says in the New Testament, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So he talks about these angels who stepped out of their, uh, their proper placement, and he puts them in a special prison, which First Peter 3 refers to as well, these spirits who are in chains until the final judgment, and compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. In what way? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So there's something about the way the sons of God were interrelating with human beings that's monstrous, it's freaky, but something's going on here big to cause a flood. It's not just believers marrying unbelievers. Certainly God could cause a, a revival among the Sethites that could turn that. There's something more satanic going on here, and it's probably focused upon the seed and the promise of the seed. If it can mess up humanity, then the seed can't come. At least that's the thinking of Satan and his demons. They don't have omniscience. They just know what God promised and know that God does not lie. Also in 2 Peter, another New Testament passage that doesn't make much sense apart from the interpretation that I'm presenting. In 2 Peter 2, for if God did not spare angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of glooming darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So in the same context, chronologically, talks about the angels and then right about Noah's day. It makes sense that what we're reading here, as fantastical as it may seem, is what is being described. Something monstrous was going on, Satan trying to thwart the seed, and that in the atmosphere of all the sinfulness pent up in the hearts of people living for centuries. Notice verse 4 gives us a little more insight on this identity of the sons of God. It says, The Nephilim, which is a general, a general description for giants, which we'll look at in a moment, giant people. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, 
and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There's something significant about the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men here mentioned. If we come to verse 3, we see the Lord's reaction. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So the sons of God, it seems most likely, were angelic, fallen angelic beings. Not the angels that Jesus said couldn't be given to marriage because they weren't fallen angels. These are demonic beings. What is in reference, what is meant by the reference of 120 years that God speaks concerning man's days? Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not compete with man any further. I'm not going to keep doing this with mankind. He's just flesh. I'm not going to strive with man here. He's not going to think that he can oppose me. He's not going to think that he can align with Satan and overthrow my promises. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, it's possible what is being said here, there's a pronouncement of how many years before the flood would come. 120 years, and I'm going to wipe off the earth. That's possible, but in the last chapter, we left off with Noah as 500 years old. Then, when the flood starts, he's 600 years old. So this is only 100 years, not 120 years. It's a long time, time to make the ark, but not 120. I think the best interpretation of what is referred to here is God lessening the amount of time people can live, lifespans. They're not going to live to be 900 years any longer. We see what happens when that goes up. So we're going to, I'm going to limit their days on the earth. That's what's meant by saying his days shall be 120 years. It's interesting because right after the flood, and there may be other contributing features. It could be something about the environment itself after the flood. It could have to do with just the genetic entropy that starts to happen over time. But we notice that right after the flood, There's some longer lives, but not nearly as long as some of the original ones we're talking about here. And then eventually it gets down to where you don't hear of anyone living past, certainly not to 120. In fact, in modern times, do you know, if you looked at who the oldest people who are living at any given time, they're usually 115, 117. Every once in a while there's a documented person who's 120, 121 maybe, that's just trusting the records are right. But the vast majority, as you well know, The average lifespan is 75 or 76 right now. So something clearly is so, so monstrous going on that God reacts this way and he shortens the actual days that people will live after this point, after the flood. Now, let's ask the question of verse 4. Who were the Nephilim? Because they appear in the scripture in other places after the flood as well. Well, the term Nephilim is just descriptive of giant, giant people. I don't mean MBA giant, like seven foot one, talking 10 feet. There's skeletal remains that, they have, that people have found that show people that got this big. So through time, there were people who got to this size. We know Goliath, that, that he was a son of Anak, so there's something in the genetic line of Anak that went away eventually. But in this case, this is descriptive of giant people. In this case, the offspring of these sons of God and the daughters of man. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
you have that kind of a mindset, then you have the growth of this race of the Nephilim. Um, this was going to get worse and worse without intervention on the part of God. That kind of brings up a question in our minds probably. What particular sin then provoked God's judgment that he would bring a flood? Well, the first thing is what we've noted, that there's some satanic activity here with the sons of God now taking human wives as they chose. But also we see in connection to this, verse 5, that the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth. Verse 11, that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's a whole lot of work at work in this passage. The complexity of wickedness, it can't be understated. It's not understated. The devil, the world, and the flesh are working at optimum level here in the days of Noah. The devil's working to corrupt mankind. Even more pointedly, he's working to corrupt the seed of the woman. Mankind on the whole is cooperating with this satanic scheme. All of this combines to provoke God's wrath. God sees this wickedness and he responds in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. What a tragic thing to say. You know what was going on to bring God to say this. Had to been so magnificent, we can't comprehend how bad it was. I'm going to blot it all out. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Moses writing now so that we could fully grasp the gravity and the weight of what God thought concerning the evil that was around. And that erases another question because we don't usually think in terms of the all-knowing God who cannot make a mistake. We don't usually attribute regret or being sorry with him. And that's a good judgment, a good interpretive key. That makes us wonder, well, what's going on here? Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is an example where the biblical writer takes something that human beings experience uniquely and applies it to God so that we can fully sense how bad the situation is. There's no way to put it in divine terms because we're not divine. But when you put it in human terms, it starts to make sense. We know it's an anthropomorphic device, the big label for it, because grieved him to his heart is an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a body with a heart the same way we do. Anthropomorphisms are throughout the scriptures to describe God in human terms, just so we get a sense of who he is and what he is thinking. God had a grieved heart. The Lord regretted. This doesn't mean that he realized he made a mistake. It's just a simple, plain, but powerful way of saying how grieved he was by the sin of mankind who was created in his image. I am sorry that I have made them, verse 7. Calvin does a great job explaining how this device is used and why it's so powerful here. Calvin wrote, The repentance which is here ascribed to God does not properly belong to him, but has reference to our understanding of him. For since we cannot comprehend him as he is, it is necessary that, for our sake, he should, in a certain sense, transform himself, this figure, which represents God as transferring to himself what is peculiar to human nature. This is called anthropomorphism. Despite the desperate state of humankind that is described by God regretting, being sorry about me, despite how bad it could possibly be, despite God's justified 
anger toward the wickedness embraced by humanity and the affront of Satan. Despite these things, the grace of God remembers and preserves. In this human sense, we gather how justified he'd be to be upset with what he sees happen. And yet in the same moment, we read in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Despite all of this, I'm going to wipe it all out. Everything completely gone. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The world around had become completely soaked in wickedness. But God puts grace on Noah because God had promised to preserve the seed. And so he'll do what he has promised. When I read, when I read this passage, it struck me how similar it is thematically to what we see throughout the Bible. But especially in Ephesians chapter 2. You have this awful description of mankind apart from God, and then you have this beautiful interposition of God coming in and showing his grace. In Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a description of pre-flood earth. The prince of the power of the air working, all that's happening, the sons of disobedience, and it says, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, all there in Ephesians chapter 2. There they are in our face, and we were part of it, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What a picture of pre-flood earth, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He didn't say everything was so bad, and he looked at you and saw you were doing pretty good, and he put his favor on you and changed things. No, but God, despite the fact that we were among them, among that wickedness, he shows grace to us in Christ. But God. Now, back to Genesis 6, in that light. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, the land. For I am sorry that I made him. Verse 8. But Noah... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor the same way every other sinner ever founds favor. Because the good pleasure of God decides to put it upon him. But bound more than that is God to his oath, his promise to preserve the seed. So he puts grace upon Noah. And he preserves Noah and his family so the seed would be preserved and you and I could be saved. God's grace remembers and preserves. This is the story of Genesis 6, the story of Noah, the story of every one of us here, the story of God's people. I conclude with some food for thought as we go into the rest of the chapter. Our Lord Jesus, before he ascended, before he went to the cross, in fact, he gave a picture of what it would be like when he comes again in glory. And since we're in this section, I want us to hear this as I close. Jesus said, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so very faithful to your promises. You have 
you are a champion of grace to us through Christ. Lord, for any here lacking assurance of salvation, please give them, give us encouragement again by your Spirit that you are a God who remembers and preserves. And if we are in Christ, you will never forget that. We will be seen by you in him. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.